So we're going to open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As is our custom, we're going to walk through uh, a book of the Bible uh, on a regular basis. This is kind of the norm for us. And this is a protection. Uh, this is a protection for you from me. This keeps me from just simply every week picking something that I'm really excited about, some hobby horse of mine, uh, and then kind of imposing it upon you. But instead, we let the text set the agenda such that we go, well, what are we going to talk about as a group of people this next week? Well, I don't know. Let's see what's next in the text. And so we want to read uh, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 1, we were introduced to this church that, as I encourage you, I want to invite you into kind of a, a boredom, right? This, this letter from the Apostle Paul to a church that he had planted in Thessalonica is very different than any other kind of letter that he writes. For example, you'll see before and after this particular letter, Paul writes a letter to, to churches in Rome, that book of, to Romans or, or to Corinth, Corinthians. And, and in these certain other letters, there's, there's a lot going on, right? There's, there's lots of ethical debates going on in Corinth. There's theological treatise that's piled into the book of Romans and Colossians. Uh, and to the Galatians, there's like a big division. Uh, in Philippians, there's like some personal factions and fights going on in the church. And, and in a sense, there's a really cool thing that Paul's letter to the Thessalonians sets out for us. There's none of those things. And it's a relatively, compared to the other ones, kind of a boring letter in which he says, here's the evidence of God's grace at work in you. Here's what I'm encouraged by. Here's where I see God working. Well done, keep doing it. And I invite you into that kind of a boredom because I really do pray this is the kind of letter that could be written to a church like ours 40, 50 years from now. The apostle could look at our church and go, keep doing it. Look at all the ways that God is shaping you. Look at all the ways in which the gospel is making you look more and more like Jesus. I'm so encouraged to keep going. So in the first chapter, he introduces us to the evidences of God's grace amongst the people. He says that the gospel came. It had power. It came in power. It came with the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And it came with these people with full conviction. They were fully convinced of, of their own unworthiness of God's love. But they were fully convinced of Christ's finished work on their behalf. And then it says that they began to imitate Jesus and imitate the disciples so much so that they were even calling others to imitate them as they followed Jesus. And they were patiently waiting for Jesus to come back and restore all things. And beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, he begins to defend his leadership amongst the people in Thessalonica. Evidently, one of the messengers or by letter or something had kind of word had gotten back to Paul that, that maybe his leadership had been questioned. Because after all, if you want to destroy a movement, you destroy the leader. And it seems that might be what was going on here. And so he begins to defend his leadership. And as a result of him defending his leadership, he casts a vision for what biblical leadership ought to look like with us. How we ought to wield our influences modeled for us. And we're going to read together all the way to verse 12, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. 
God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But in verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We believe this is God's word. And my prayer is that it becomes more than just ink on a page for you, but it becomes the very words of God through his spirit to exalt Christ. We saw last week as Paul began to defend the attacks against his leadership amongst this church, he gives us a vision of leadership. And last week, verses 1 through 6, he gives us, in a sense, an x-ray vision into leadership. And we saw last week the anatomy of a leader that as Paul gives a defense for his leadership, he helps prepare us to build and defend such leaders by giving us a biblical picture of healthy leadership grounded in our theological convictions. And we saw at least five different things last week. Marks of integrity, truthfulness, perseverance. These kinds of marks of a leader that we would want. Authority and accountability, a trustworthiness rooted in the theological convictions, the, the authority they had was not in their own, but did you catch that? Their confidence was in God. Now, I think we can see that how you influence others is in direct relationship to your view of God. How you influence others will be the outworking of what you really believe about ultimate reality. And so as last week we saw like an x-ray into the anatomy of a biblical leader, I think now we see the appearance of a biblical leader, beginning in verse 7. And so as Paul gives a defense for his leadership, he helps prepare us to build and defend such leaders by giving us a biblical picture of healthy leadership grounded, in, as we saw last week, in theological convictions, but in this week we want to see it's grounded in our view of the family. And in essence, what he tells us here is that leaders in the church, from verse 7 through 12, leaders in the church, disciple makers, mother and father the church. A disciple maker mothers people under their influence and fathers people under their influence. This is what disciple makers do. So at the end of verse 6, you see, he begins his appeal to, to give us a, a, a vision of what leaders in the church ought to aspire to be and what influencers, disciple makers, people changed by the gospel ought to start to look like. In the end of verse 6, he says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, right? We could have appealed to our own authority. Hey, Jesus told me to tell you this. And they could have just pounded in on that. But what does he say in verse 7? He begins uh, an interesting picture that he paints for the next few verses of how he related 
to the people that he loved in Thessalonica. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You see, disciple makers are to love and nurture others personally and to lead and disciple as a family. This is what it looks like in the life of the church. This is what influence in the church looks like. And as a result, we get a picture, evidently, of the wonderful marks of a mother exalted here by Paul and the wonderful marks of a father exalted here by Paul as things that we ought to aspire to not only as mothers or potential mothers or fathers or potential fathers or even just friends of a mother or friends of a father or having a mother, having a father. We not only see the example here, but we we see that as a model for what the church is meant to look like. And there ought to be this reflection here about the, the virtues of a mother and father and the virtues of a person following Jesus, leading others to follow Jesus. And they reflect one another. Now here's what I will warn you. Because he gives us a picture of what a mother looks like and what a father looks like, he goes right after something that we take fairly personally in our present culture. A great leader is described here. And it's described in terms of maternal and paternal qualities. And all I will say to you, every single time that we open the Bible, I want, I want you to know this. If you are looking to be offended, you will always find opportunity. Always. And this is a Christian's conviction, right? We live in a broken, fallen world full of sinful, depraved people. That means every human you know is, is, a, is a prime real estate for offense. Like, every single one. There is not a single person who is not carrying around a sinful, depraved heart that will offend you. And so if you're looking for that, as we, put it, as we see the pictures of a mother and the pictures of a father, if you want this, if you want to be oppressed by this, if you want to be offended by this, th- then you will find it. But I want to push you. Don't let it just offend the surface of you. Let it offend your soul. Let it offend the deepest possible existential nature that you carry with you. Because friends, that, when you let it, that happen, now we're getting somewhere. Now the gospel comes as power. You don't believe me? You don't get hung on a cross by telling people what they want to hear. The very root of our faith, the symbol of our movement, right? The cross is an offense. You don't get hung on a cross by telling people what they want to hear. You don't get hung on a cross by reinforcing their cultural values and going, you're doing great, guys, keep it up. You know how you get on a cross? You get hung on a cross? You offend someone at the deepest possible level. You hurt them at the deepest possible level to the point where their only response is, kill this person. So if you're going to be offended, I encourage you, let's go. Let's do this. But let's be offended at the most existential level and see that God might be speaking something to you. God might be prying loose an idol of yours. And if you find yourself furious with it, If you find yourself saying, I hate what I find here, you're in good company because that's what got Jesus hung on the cross. And you're amongst the rest of them who go like, I hate that you're right. I hate that what you're saying hurts me. Crucify him. And you know what he says to you? 
in your deepest possible offense, cries out to God and says, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. So he paints a picture here that will, I think, probe at and poke at your assumptions about genders and certain roles of each gender in the life of the home. So let's do this together. He says, the picture of a family is meant to inform us, and he starts by saying that a spiritual leader ought to look like a nursing mother. I'm going to walk you through this. He could, have, he could have given any number of pictures. I'll give you just five. There's a ton of these, but as, in terms of leaders of the church, in terms of like influencers in the church, in 1 Peter 5, we see the New Testament describing uh, the, uh, these leaders as shepherds. That's the metaphor they use. That, that is that the leader in a church, someone who's influencing, discipling another, whether it's a pastor over a church or even a person discipling someone else, they are feeding, Right? We're feeding. Remember, we're, we're wells of living water once Jesus changes us. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 says that we are stewards. Right? So we've been entrusted with something. We don't, we don't own it. It's not our own. Later he says that we're like vessels, uh, like earthen vessels, like clay pots. Not really worth much, but somehow, somehow containing a, a, a vastly unquantifiable wealth. Why? So that God would get the glory and not the vessel. We're stewards. 1 Timothy 2.7, he describes the leaders in the church as heralds. And that's not a word you or I use very often, but the closest may be something like a town crier, right? Someone who is a proclaimer of the king's message, an official emissary, an official ambassador that speaks authoritatively because they've been sent by the king. 2 Timothy 2, we see that the leaders in the church are described as teachers, so that their role is, is closely related to their ability to impart and protect truth, to lead people away from error and towards truth. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians 3, he describes the leaders in the church as, he talks about himself and the leaders in the church as slaves. That they themselves are under the rule of a master. And then they live in glad submission as slaves to Jesus. And what we see here then is he picks could have picked any of these, right? He does this elsewhere, but for some reason, the, the, as he defends his leadership to the Thessalonians, he chooses these metaphors, a mother and a father. He says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We'll start with this word, this word gentle. We were gentle. This is not a common word. Uh, one of the only other places we find this is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He's speaking again at, of leaders, and he says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but, and this word gentle here is kind to everyone. Right? So again, if, you, if you've been granted peace from God, it starts to flow out of you as peace to others. When you know that you've been reconciled to God, your quarrel with others starts to dissipate. When you know you've been forgiven of a great deal, it, you have an overwhelming wealth to forgive others of a great deal. And that, that means that you, you're less likely to pick fights. We've talked about this on a regular basis. Christians ought to be the hardest people to offend in the world. Right? We've been forgiven of so much. Anything that's done against us, we ought to be like, well, I mean, I deserved hell. This bad thing you're doing to me doesn't make you worse than me. We ought to be the hardest people to offend. 
And so he does this adversative thing beginning on verse 7. Not this, but this. Not this, but this. Calculating his argument back and, and being very precise about how he means to lead people. He says, we became like moms to you. We became gentle, and the words, in the midst of you. We were gentle in the middle of you. You saw this. And even though in verse 6, he says, we could have made a claim to authority and just told you what to do, we didn't. We, we could have sat above you and spoken down to you, but what does he say? He said, we were in the middle of you. We were, we were right in the midst of you. We were gentle amongst you, like a nursing mother taking care of. Literally, this word taking care of is like cherishing. Taking care of her own children. Not in a way that was greedy, but this picture of tenderly caring. This word tenderly care literally uh, literally conveys the idea of warmth with body heat. We were so close to you that our own body heat began to warm your body. That's the kind of cherishing like a nursing mother. We might have asserted authority, but we didn't. It wasn't just authority. It was something more beautiful. Now, if you're like me, and the picture of a nursing mother doesn't remind you of something you have any real experience with, right? Either because you're like me and you're not a mom for any various reasons. But I want to join you. I just want to like kind of walk you. Th- I want to walk you through some really beautiful things going on here, and I want it to really mess with you. And, and I, want, I want to push on you. Maybe if you're not a nursing mother, here's, here's what I would say. I want to, I want to like, empathize with you, okay? This will creep you out. It's meant to. Because apart from the most intimate bond that people can experience, which is the spiritual, emotional, and sexual bond in the covenant of marriage, there is no more intimate and private bond. I, can't, I, don't, I don't know of it. Now remember, this, this bond in the covenant of marriage is meant to be that intimate. It's meant to be, it's meant to be almost like completely private. Like, it's, like this isn't appropriate in public because it's, it's so intimate. And it's so special, so valuable. And it's meant to be that way because that's, that's meant to be the parable that married couples tell to the world about what God has done intimately and powerfully in them through Jesus Christ. And we image the gospel in marriage. We don't know any more intimate bond. But right behind that, right behind that, I, I would make the argument, I think that's what Paul's doing here. Right behind the intimate bond, the covenant bond of marriage, right behind that, there's no more intimate relationship that we could find than that of a mother nursing a baby. There's no more intimate bond. Now, the way that this plays out, I would, I would kind of uh, push you into this. This is, this is where this played out in my own life. And I, I, I'm going to lead with confession here. Um, before I had a child, I was easily just like kind of just creeped out by, by breastfeeding. By, it was just, I was, I mean, I, I, again, I'm, I'll see my immaturity on display. I was like, eh, this, is, um, this is strange. Just didn't, didn't make sense. Um, there was, there's something, there's just, there's a mystery going on there. There's a connection going on there that something it's like most, and it, here's what the most important bodily functions, almost all of them, are kind of hard to talk about in, ple- in like pleasant company, wouldn't you agree? Like, and, and that ought to warn it. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't deny them. God is, God is not uh, made us only spirit. He has embodied our spirit. He has given us a body, and so there's something to be displayed. And so don't shy away from this. 
But if it does start to creep you out, I want to push you, I want to push on you. It ought, it ought to mess with you because if we're going to disciple people in a way that's profound and meaningful, leading them to Jesus, it means we've got to push past this little place where we get a little creeped out by intimacy. And so I, I noticed some things. Um, I noticed some things about a mother, and I'll give you three of them. One of the first things that, remember I told you, like there's no more important and intimate thing other than a man and a woman coming together in the covenant bond of marriage, this is, there's no more powerful bond. And so this isn't meant to, like, maybe, maybe if, if for you, this, this like, this might, it's, it's so intimate, this might stir up hurt in you. Right? This might stir up, maybe for somebody longing to be a mother but not. Maybe th- this, will, this will tap at the, the hurt that maybe you've ever even felt with your own mother. And it isn't meant to do that. It's meant to set an ideal. It's meant to say, this is, this is what we achieve. This is what we long for. And here's what I noticed. Um, as I confess to you, it kind of creeped me out. And then uh, I had a baby. Well, I, I didn't have a baby. We had a baby, right? And the very first night, and this, this, was, this was tough stuff. I learned, I learned a ton about it. I asked permission to say all this stuff, okay? So just don't, don't worry. So I've walked through this so I can nuance it carefully and not act like a buffoon. Um, and, and, and there's this weird thing, because, because I'm such a slave to my culture, right? Since the sexual revolution, what I would argue, like the pornification of society, nudity almost always has a sexual connotation. And it's divided on very, 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 ooh, they're very depraved lines. That, that, and and, and this, it's powerful, and this is going to push back against it, right? The nudity of, of women in culture is almost always sexualized. Right? But the nudity of men in culture is almost always humorized. And if you see one, it's, a, it's like a sex object. And if you see the other one, it's like a joke. And, re- and this, is, this is a problem. Because remember, we are embodied spirits. We're embodied souls. And so even nudity is something like it's a, it's a cherished thing. And so whenever people would nurse you, kind of like, oh, i got to look away. Because, because it, this, is, this, is a really, this hits a nerve for us, doesn't it? It hits a nerve for us. We don't know what to do. And so I know some, many of you women in the room have had, to, like someone has probably said something very insensitive um, to you in, in the process of, of breastfeeding or nursing a child, right? And I, forgive us, we're just slaves to our culture. We don't know what to do. No one's taught us what to do here. So show us mercy in that. We, we just, we don't know what to do. And, and as a result, like, I, I was creeped out with it. And then my, my the, you know, the, the lactation uh, nurse came in and, and they were gonna get the baby to latch on. And they're like, um, they're like, to do this, I mean, it, this is going to be, you're going to have to kind of relinquish any privacy, right? Because the thing that will really initiate the baby to latch on will be skin-to-skin contact. There's only one way to do that, and that's to remove clothing. And, and this, this is the part where I'm like, oh, uh, okay, I don't, you know, there's people in the room. This is not, we're not supposed to be doing this. What's, what's, this, is, this is weird. And then something crazy happened. My little baby Harper latched on. And I, I can't tell this story well. Um, it was, I, I, kid, I kid you not, yo, this was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. These are the two most precious people I know. They're the most two valuable people I know. And then this, and like something happened. And, and, and here's the thing, is like this played out even later. Like, like my wife, even in breastfeeding, she would just start crying while breastfeeding. 
she would just, I mean, I mean, part of it's like, because, again, the body does crazy things. The most intimate things in the body, are, they're, they're wildly inexplic- inexplicable, right? And either just by hormones or emotions, there was just a love and a bond there, and she would just, she would just cry. And I get it. I did the same thing. I was like, I've never, I've never seen anything this beautiful my whole life. Never my whole life. And yet this, this thing, this thing that likes, this intangible thing that, that either creeps us out or gets at the heart of something, this is what it looks like to share the gospel with someone. This is what it's like to invite someone in to hear what Christ has done in the innermost part of your soul. And that means we relinquish some privacy, right? It's going to force some nakedness. And with your own sanctified imagination here, it's going to force some skin-on-skin contact, some exchange of body warmth. And apart from that, apart from it, you're going to be missing out. You're going to be missing out on what God does in the life of the church. The people around you ought ought to get into your bubble. Right? If the people around you were leading one another to Christ, that means we ought to regularly get into one another's bubble. It ought to be a kind of some skin-on-skin contact. It kind of freaks you out. That's how you know you're doing it right. That's how you know. The second thing we see is not just that there's an intimacy there, but there's a building of rapport between the mother and the daughter. This is a powerful word that I've, I've started to pray for in my own marriage. The word rapport is this. It's the deepest possible level of communication. It says, a close and harmonious relationship in which the people or groups concerned understand each other's feelings or ideas and communicate well. And in this moment, the, the mom and the baby are building rapport. They're beginning to understand each other in a profound way. Right? And, this, and this is what I found to be, again, I got permission to say all this, okay? Um, you start to learn the cries. A good mother building rapport with the child, real intimacy, begins to understand the cries. You begin to understand the kind of cries that you should run to, to aid, and the other cries that are maybe a little bit more selfish. Right? Maybe a little more, like, not as urgent. Right? And, and if you see this, if you ever watch a parent and like their child is crying over there, and they don't immediately run to them, you're thinking, what a terrible parent. No, they just know the difference. They know, they're like, That's not, he's, just, he's just doing his thing. Just ignore him. <laughs> because they know something. The worst thing you can do for a child crying and throwing a tamper, tantrum in the, in the toy store is to buy the toy that they're crying for, right? You just taught them, hey, this is what happens. If you throw a big fit, you get what you want. And a wise mom here, like building rapport, knows the difference. Knows the cry of hunger, begins to know the cry of a dirty diaper, begins to know the cry of, of, of something like if, if the baby's colicky or if, there's, if the baby's having indigestion of some sort. They begin to know the difference. Here's what I would say. If disciple makers love and care for one another in the same way, then so do we. We build rapport with one another and we begin to realize the difference between a person who's deeply in need and we see that need. Like I hear you crying right now for something, but people who love Jesus and lead other people to Jesus see through it. Like I hear you crying something, but I want you to know what you really need is not what you think you need. 
Like, I know you think you need this thing, but I want to show you the deepest hurt in your soul can only be solved by Jesus. And here's what I would tell you. Maybe if you're in this room and you're not a believer, right? Maybe you're not, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I'm really glad you're here because I want you to see this on its merit. I want you to see what Christians really believe. And if you, if you come to this room with some sort of frustration or burden, some sort of, some sort of anger, some sort of unforgiveness, I, wanna, I want you to hear what Christians really believe. We're the people that hopefully love you enough to say that the thing you're crying for isn't really the best thing for you. And it's simply evidence that there's something much deeper in your soul. Something that none of us can solve, but we know someone who did. And the most loving thing we can do is to build rapport with you and say, I know you're mad about this thing, but I want, I want you to listen. I want you to consider the possibility that that thing is just pointing to something much deeper. You're mad because of this, but down deep, you're worshiping yourself. And there's only one who deserves or worthy, or one who's deserving and worthy of worship, and it's Jesus. We build rapport. The last thing we see, uh, at least maybe just my own observation, is a mother nursing with affection and desire, like this desirous affection. You catch this, like there's this longing to, to care for a child. Um, the last thing we see is that a, a good mother knows when to stop nursing. Right? Remember I told you like the worst idol uh, in our culture allows us or like makes it to where we can't tell each other how to parent because if you tell someone how to parent, they will fight you. Seriously. Um, and, and so like, I want to be careful here, but a good mother knows when to stop, right? And, and this is tricky because this is, this is a blurry area in our, in our culture, right? This is something that I don't, know that we, I don't know that we're really good at this, and we may not be able to really talk about it. But I'll share with you our experience. It got to a point where the desirous affection, right, the crying, remember, like, this is so beautiful, this is amazing. It got to a point, where, and I, I asked, got permission to say this, and my, my wife is a phenomenal mother, and so I say this with all the love and grace I can possibly say. She got annoyed with breastfeeding our daughters. Like, it got to a point where it was like, like, okay, it's about time to wrap this up, you know? Because at first, you're, think about, think the beautiful picture here. It's a, it's a giving of life. It's a literally, it's emptying of oneself into another for the sake of their survival, Right? And it's beautiful, it's amazing. But there's a point where like, the baby's like, okay, you don't need this to survive. You might, little baby, be already manipulating for attention or affection. You might already be kind of using this to get something else other than like sustenance. And a good mother begins to see that, right? Uh, if, if this is too narrow, I'll just broaden it as much as I can. If a child can give you three points why they should continue to breastfeed, the answer is always no. <laughs> right? Like, at a certain point, at a certain point, that child can start to eat for themselves, feed themselves. They can start to do this. And a good mother knows when it's actually hindering the child. To release them. A bad mother, and this is, this is tough for us because this is our culture beyond breastfeeding, a bad mother will, will use that baby to meet her own emotional needs. 
A bad mother will push this long beyond the life-giving stage of nursing, and it will push it into, like, I'm using you because I'm lonely. I'm using you. Remember, there's, there's deeper issues to this. And a good mother will know the difference. Fun fact that goes well beyond breastfeeding. Like, helicopter parenting is, is, is our cultural idol. Right? Live all your successes and failures out through your kids. Right? Have high, high expectations. We, we have more prosperity in our country than we've ever had, and yet anxiety levels in children are skyrocketing above anywhere they've ever been. Why? Because parents are, are forcing this high pressure, high performance, this, this, this drive to achieve. Succeed all the places where I've failed. Right? Don't fail because it's a bad reflection on me. And living out your dreams to your children is a multi-billion dollar industry. Now, I'm not saying Johnny can't be like Brett Favre and a pro quarterback one day. But I want you to consider the possibility that you might be just living out your own insecurities through that child. And the psalmist gives us a picture of parenthood. Right? And we misquote it, turn it into something we put on a coffee table. It says that children are a blessing from the Lord. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Friend, as often as I get a chance to poke at this idol, I will. What's the purpose of an arrow in the hand of a warrior but to be drawn back with strength, resistance, and accuracy and then be released into the heart of the enemy? Your children are mission ammunition. They have been given to you not for your glory but God's. And he is a better father than you. I say this because I want you to encourage me. The greatest act of faith my wife and I will ever, ever do, I really believe, we've talked about this and prayed, the greatest act of faith we will ever do will be to release our children into the hands of their father and really trust that he knows better than me. You see that? A a good mom knows when the nursing should stop. A good mom will not hinder the growth of a child. They'll actually encourage it. So if if that's a one-to-one correlation here that Paul seems to be telling... That means that a spiritual leader, someone who is influencing others, making disciples, a disciple maker, will be all three. They will have the most intimate bond between two people apart from the covenant bond of marriage. They will be able to have rapport. That is, they'll be able to discern real needs, different cries, and then they'll know when to stop nursing. And Jesus demanded of the church, go make disciples and gave and entrusted this care to the disciples that they should multiply. And that's what healthy things do. They multiply. Healthy things make more healthy things. So here's this picture of a mother, right? This picture is a a mother is a gentle, nurturing. Look at all the, I mean, these are words right out of the text that we ought to aspire to as a church. A mother is a gentle, a nurturing, a security providing, a self-giving, around-the-clock working, gospel-proclaiming caregiver. I love the next phrase. It says, so had desire for you such that we didn't just give you the gospel, right? Didn't just give you the good news, but we gave our own lives. And you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. If that doesn't sound like a breastfeeding mother, I don't know what is. Right? I mean, a few of you are like, yes, yeah. The rest of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about. Yes, we're right here. Like, if, if laboring night and day, investing in someone, isn't the picture of a nursing mother, I don't know what is. And I love it. That he says, 
our own lives. We gave not just the gospel, but we gave you our lives. That's, remember that skin-to-skin contact. Emptying of ourselves for the sake of your well-being. We gave it to you. So we, you became dear to us. And we never stopped working, pouring into you so that we wouldn't be a burden to you, right? Hear that? Hear that? Hear that? A mother knows when to stop, right? Did you catch that? We don't want to be a burden at a certain point. We don't want to hold you back. We want to push you to excel and to, to grow and to be all that God has created you to be. We worked all night to do this while we proclaim to you the gospel. What a beautiful picture. Now I want to stop for a moment because I just made a statement about what a mother looks like. And here's what I think you'll find in our culture. Um, we're kind of in a spot that we're very polarized such that you can't be for anything without a bunch of people assuming you're against another. Um, we're just not in a place where we can say, I'm for this. And, every, and, and immediately, everyone else's response is, well, does that mean you're against this? Or that's, you, you probably feel this is the air that we breathe, right? Right? And so like we have things like uh, black lives matter and blue lives matter. And there's this false assumption that if you're for one, you're against the other. And I want to push right back against that. Right? We throw off idols and all earthly loyalties. We see the image of God. It changes everything. We see it in others such that we have the ability to love, and this is Jesus talking here, not just your friend, because any idiot can love their friend, but even their enemy. So be careful. Reject the notion that to, to love one thing is to hate another. That isn't always the case. So I say a mother is this, and this is, these, are, these are characteristics that I believe God has created to, be, to women to be naturally good at. And I know what you're thinking. So you're saying a man can't be this? A man can't be around the clock working? A man can't be a gospel proclaiming caregiver? I'm not saying that. Not at all. But I am saying we exalt this. We'll talk about it with the father as well, but like it's not that we it's not that we like take gender stereotypes and impose them on people or hinder people from doing by all means do this. Remember, this is a picture of a man, Paul, speaking to the men and women he discipled in Thessalonica, saying to men and women in Thessalonica, keep doing this. And you'll say, well, are you saying so since I'm not a woman, I can't do this? Well, I mean, there are limits. But we're the kind of people that, that push past those and think, okay, God has God called us to do this so that we will exalt this in women. It doesn't mean that every woman's going to be naturally good at this or must be naturally good at this. It doesn't mean that every man is going to be bad at this. It just means that we are unashamedly glad that God created women and mothers like this. We love it. And again, if you find it, well, you're against, no, that's, that's the culture talking. That is your, that is your, that is your approval addicted side of your brain talking. Okay. We can love both our friends and our enemies. We don't have to be against something for the sake of being for another. This is what a mother looks like. And so therefore, this is what we look like. This is what we encourage and love mothers to look like in our church, but it also this means this is, what, this is what I ought to look like. This is what people who love one another and lead others to Jesus ought to look like. Lives marked by self-sacrifice and self-giving. It labored among you around the clock. My desire is that we would be mothers. Not just having a job with authority, but that we would be intimate. A couple of things here. I say this especially to those of you who only know me on a Sunday. If the people you interact with is only on a Sunday, even especially me, this will be impossible. This will be impossible. 
you will only see the gospel as something that is something passed down with authority and you won't experience that second part. Like we, we didn't just give you the gospel, we gave you our lives. And we were gentle among you in close quarters while we proclaim the gospel of God. But the second thing I want you to see here is I want you to picture gospel community in this. I want you to picture gospel community. When, I, when you see gentle, nurturing, living close quarters, self-giving, around-the-clock working, gospel-proclaiming caregivers, I want you to picture your gospel community. That's what this is for. Ultimately, this is, this is how we love and care for one another. Like Jesus, we get some people around us, and we, and we look to Jesus for help. I'll come back to that. The next thing he does is he goes to talk about fathers. You remember brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day. We might not be a burden to you while we proclaim the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God is is also, and then he talks about his example, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, he goes to the other side, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is what a godly father looks like. An exhorter, an encourager, a charger, an example who walks along and points to a greater kingdom and a greater glory that belongs to God. I say this because even in our own culture, we have a hard time thinking about what a man is. I'm going to quote some people that are not even Christians. One sociologist by the name of Hannah Rosen says this, modern post-industrial society is simply better suited to women. Time Magazine has, these are some titles of some different publications. Time Magazine called it, Young Men Are Facing a Masculinity Crisis. The Atlantic called one of their articles, and this is just last few years, The End of Men. Washington Post says, A Crisis of Masculinity. These are just the titles of non-Christian publications. Lest you think that Paul is poking at something that's irrelevant, see this. Psychology Today, one of the articles is titled, The Male Identity Crisis, What Will Happen to Men? Salon says, toxic masculinity is killing men. We have a man problem and we have a masculinity problem and that leads us to have a father problem. You don't believe me, all you have to do is look. In the last couple of weeks, something that was popularized about 10 years ago came back. And there's a campaign, hashtag Me Too. And there's a barrage of women who've been mistreated and assaulted and completely objectified by, I'll put this in big quotes, men. Paul sees this need. He addresses it elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. Why? Why would he see the need to encourage people in the faith like children? Verse 15 says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Here, it sounds like he's talking about the Thessalonians, right? For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Paul senses this. Well, what does a man look like? Well, again, 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 13, he says it this way. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. And there's an interesting word that shows up in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but uniquely here in a couple of other places. He says, act like men. And you might say, well, what is that? What is a man? 
And he says, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I push on this. Again, this is where, I, like, if, if half your brain goes, well, can, well, you're saying women can't be strong? Again, that is, that is the approval-addicted side of your brain shaped by your culture talking, okay? That is, that is not what's going on here. It's saying this is what we will exalt in a man. This is what we will push on a man. Can a woman be strong? Yes. You don't believe, come, meet my mom. She's still scary, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's not weak. But it's saying that what is expected of my father is strength. My mom wants to be strong, great, but she's going to be expected to be a gentle, self-giving, around-the-clock caregiver, but then a man we're going to expect to be strong. We're not saying that someone else can't be. We're not saying that everyone's going to have the same measurement of strength. But this is what we're going to actually encourage and honor. We're going to honor this. I love this. He says, like, you can be strong, but you can also be loving. I don't know if you caught that. Like, be a man, be strong. The way I would describe this, I probably heard me say this, is like, I can pick up my daughters because I'm strong, okay? But I don't pick them up by the hair because I'm gentle. You get it? I can pick them up because I'm strong. But real strength is the ability to express that strength with with gentleness and kindness, with genuine love. And if one messes up the other, well, then this is why I think God gives us mothers and fathers. I think it's part of his beautiful design. And as a result, we see this little picture. In these words, a father then is an exhorting, encouraging, authoritatively charging, kingdom-declaring, God-glorifying example. We were like a father. We exhorted, we encouraged, we charged, right? You get this picture of influence wielded heavily. Well, why did they do that? Because there was apparently something that God was doing. This man was wielding authority as a father. Paul was wielding this authority, not as though he had his own authority, but he was leading as a father who calls you into his own kingdom and his own glory. Don't miss this. Disciple makers, mother and father of the church. Disciple makers will mother and father the church. I'm going to land this in two different places. The first one is in our gospel communities. Um, currently, our gospel communities, we hope to exist across one of four different spectrums that Jesus models for disciple making. That is that Jesus related to, him, as himself, he related to crowds. You have like the one on the crowds. You have like one on 12, his disciples. And then you see even deeper than that, he has like one on three. He'll take Peter, James, and John aside. And then he has like one-on-one encounters. Think the woman at the well. Think Peter, he pulls aside and says, get behind me, Satan, right? And, and, it's, and it's pretty impossible to do one across different spectrums, right? I mean, you can pull Peter, you can pull your friend aside and say, hey, what you're doing is satanic. It's really hard for me to call one of you out and being like, in the crowd of people going like, you're being, I don't even want to point over that. I just mean, like, I don't even want to play with that. If I pointed one of you out, it was like, you're being satanic. Like, that wouldn't be helpful. You wouldn't be like, thanks for shaming me in front of a crowd, right? This, this is what Jesus models. And our hope is that gospel communities exist beneath this, right? This is, the, the ceiling is low when you're sitting in a row. The ceiling is low. Your expectations ought to be low for following Jesus, for understanding the Bible, if this is your only interaction with other Christians. This is not it. And Jesus modeled that by pulling along 12 others 
and then pulling along Peter and James and John. And so gospel communities are meant to exist in that realm where intimacy, mothering, and fathering can actually take place. But here's something I need you to know, and it's a really cool blessing, but it ought to shake you up, and it ought, these words ought to scare you a little bit. Currently, our gospel communities, there's seven of them, because, because we believe so strongly that only people assessed in their ability to lead other people to Jesus, like mothers and fathers, not just with the conviction of the first half of the chapter, but also with the, fam- the familial relationships in the second half of the chapter, we don't let someone lead a gospel community unless they've been assessed, unless we poke at them, and we really mess with them really, like, a lot. So that we know we're putting you in, a, in the space where if we're asking you to be intimate with these people, we're going to run them through the ringer. And as a result, right now, God has blessed us. Our gospel communities are overgrown. And they're operating like crowds rather than people experiencing mothering and fathering. So if you're wondering, well, what does this mean for you? I, w- I would push right on you. This is what Paul is doing. He is modeling a type of influence that is to be wielded in the church. And the way we say it in our church is, if you see the need, you have heard the call. If you see the need, assume that is the Holy Spirit putting you on a runway. That may be long, but it is a path towards being what Christ has called you to be. So the most practical way I can say this, you want to see this happen? Come, come talk to me. Email me. Fill out something on the card and drop it in the thing. I I just want to know more about this. Even if it's just, I want to help my gospel community leader be better at this. Whatever it is, be an MVP. Be a cheerleader to this. This is what we expect. And I hope, right now, I hope, remember what I told you? If this is not you, and you're like, you think you can sit back and watch someone else do all this work, I hope this creeps you out. I hope this makes you very uncomfortable. Because that is exactly the point of this text. This is what loving people in the name of Jesus looks like. It's around-the-clock demands. It's a movement marked by suffering. Our symbol is a cross. A radical, a radical and courageous leadership like a father. This is how we can already start to do this. So where do we start? It means that we have to begin by admitting that we're not this, right? Admit that as a parent, as a father, as a mother, I'm not this. Do I do this well? I've shared with many of you, I was a pastor of an established church um, uh, before I jumped out into church planting and, and I just was terrible at this. I did not love people like a mother. I didn't. Didn't come alongside them and value them and love them. Love them enough to say what was right or love them enough to follow up when they were wrong. And most of what I think is going on well here in my own life and in the life of our church is just because I've failed at it. So we start by saying, it, you're not this, right? Father, if, if there's any father in the room who's like, I'm killing it. I'm doing this to my kids. Woo! You know, I'm like, I want to push back on you. Admit you're not this. If you're a mother, admit your struggle with this. Admit that this is difficult. And then we're conformed by his word. We trust the process, even if it's suffering, that it will tenderize us and it will make us look more and more like the apostle Paul would want us to look. And then we're willing to give our whole lives to this. We'll have the tender, mother-like affections for people. And we'll have the father-like desire to encourage, to exhort people towards a God-glorifying legacy. We need this. 
You say, how can I do this? Friend, we look to Jesus. There is no one person who was more nurturing and gentle than Jesus. There is no person who was more courageous and bold than Jesus. And he didn't use them for himself. Notice what, for men, notice what Jesus did with his strength. He exerted his strength by doing what? By bullying people and to get his way? No, by laying down his own desires to save people. He used his strength and his courage to walk into the fire, to walk into the depths of suffering for the people he loved. That's what he used his strength for. He used his strength to gently help the people around him. But he was also gentle and he was a nurturer. We see this. He was incredibly nurturing. But so women, here's what I would say. He wasn't just nurturing to his own family. He wasn't just nurturing to the people he liked. He was nurturing to the people who wanted to kill him. And this shapes the way we aspire to this. No one has ever been a more motherly, nurturing person than Jesus. No one has ever loved us and led us like a father ought to than Jesus. And because of it, it shapes us, it softens us. Here's the picture what this will look like. When Jesus starts to mess you up, when his, when his gentleness to call you to carry his burden, which is easy, and his, and, his, and his bold and confident demand that you lay down your life, you'd be willing to take up your cross and die to be his. Both of these things we see perfectly seen in Jesus. And I'll show you a, a picture that, uh, or I'll paint a picture for you what I saw. Um, some of you know this story. I went to help um, partner with a church planter in Nepal. Um, this is in between India and China and out in the swamp, like 100 degrees, 100% humidity, and not the pretty Himalayas. This is awful. And, and got to see people loving Jesus, planting churches. It was amazing. And I remember I got a chance to preach to these people. And again, because they're not like in a Western post-sexual revolution age, things are different. And so in the back left, this, the men and the women separated. You had men over here, women over here. And in the back left, there were all the women who were breastfeeding their children. Okay? Now luckily, this was after I had a baby myself. Okay? So it, was, it wasn't Bali, it was really cool. And they just, and, and there's, I'm going to show you this picture of the couple we met. Over here, there was a mother, right? And in one hand, she was holding her baby and nursing the baby. And in the other hand, she was holding a Bible. In one hand, she was feeding this child. With the other hand, she was preparing to feed that child for the rest of eternity with words that will never fade. Across over here was her husband, the father, who was holding a sacked out baby, right? right? It's a ministry of rest, peace of Christ. Go to sleep, right? It's, it's okay if you fall asleep in my sermon. And that's the peace of Christ on you, right? And he's holding this sacked out baby right over here in one hand, and he's holding the Bible in his other. And he's doing the same thing. He was holding and carrying this child with strength but he was holding something else that would grant this son of his even more strength down the road. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture for us, disciple makers, mother and father, the church. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your perfection in this as we are exposed to our imperfection in this. We know that you are a better father than our own, and so some of these things stir up hurt in us. 
We know you're a better mother than our own, and so these sometimes stir up hurt in us. But God, we thank you for being the nurturer, for being the right, everything we needed for life and for joy. We thank you for being the the lover of our souls, the -the around-the-clock caregiver. We also thank you in Jesus Christ that you were the sacrificial, self-giving example. And so first, if there's any in this room and they're, they're walking around with a father wound or a mother wound, or maybe the wound of being failing, of feeling like they're failing as a mother or father, would you allow them in these moments to look away from these things and look to the perfect example that is Jesus, who in his perfection did not crush the lowly, but exalted them. And he did not team up with the haughty and arrogant, but he lowered them. We thank you for being this for us. If there's some in this room that have never considered the possibility that this this thing that Jesus has demonstrated for us and done on our behalf could change everything, it could change the way that we love and care and lead others, would you begin to do that now? Would you begin to stir that in us? Allow us to place our trust in that one thing. Jesus has finished the work for us so that now we can follow in his footsteps. Jesus has been for us the perfect caregiver. Jesus has been for us the perfect example. And now we know this and are shaped by it and we can begin to aspire to it in his name. Maybe for the rest of us, we're just uh, either just keeping people at arm's length. There's no real skin-to-skin contact. There's no real intimacy. Begin to, begin to allow us to confess that as sin, confess that as a barrier, our own desire for approval and comforts keeping us from this beautiful thing that you've painted for us and a mother and a child. Maybe for some of us, we're just timid and don't really want to say what's true. We're afraid of, of, of saying those truthful things out of our mouth like a loving and exhorting father. Would you begin to allow us to confess that as sin as well? It's a desire for comfort that keeps us from truth. Thank you for this example in Jesus Christ. Allow it to shape us in the way that we interact with one another. Bless us and our church as we begin to aspire to this perfect example you set for us in Jesus. Amen.